0: Before we start this episode, we'd like to give a massive thanks to Jordan Freeman and the Zoom platform for setting up this interview. This is an audio version of the full video version of the interview we had with Stephen Kent. If you would like to see the full video version, please check the link in your podcatcher. This is part two of a four-part interview with Stephen Kent, and part three will be dropping very soon, so please keep an eye out for it. We had an absolute blast talking to Stephen about his books, The Ultimate History of Video Games, Volume 1 and 2. They are great books, so definitely check them out if you get the chance. With all that being said, please enjoy the show.
1: If you'll indulge me, uh, Stephen, I have I have two stories that I think are my favorites from uh, volume one, if you'll allow me to tell them. And um, one of them is, it's an incredibly famous story, and I knew a little bit of it going in, and that is the price that was heard around the world. 1995 E3, you know, uh, Sega have just come out on stage and they've said, the Saturn will be released and it's being released right now. In fact, it's at retailers and all the retailers went, I'm sorry, what? Yeah. <laughs> they were like, yeah. This is the price. It's this and this and this and all this. And then um, Sony are a way through a, one of their uh, talks and someone gets up and he just walks to the, I'm blanking on the person's name. I do apologize. Steve race. Gets up and goes to the podium. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Steve race gets up and just says two ninety nine and walks away. And the crowd just erupts. <laughs> that's all he has to say. Two ninety nine.
2: That moment is still on on YouTube. It's worth watching on YouTube because it is, it is really a seminal, pivotal moment in the history of video games.
1: It really is. It really is. Um, and I absolutely love it. And I think one of the other ones is uh, th- there's two, but there's two more. But I'm just going to go with one, and that's. Um, Uh, with, I believe it was Shark Attack... Um, and so this was an arcade game that, um, you would walk up to the cabinet and it's, it's designed to look like a shark is attacking you. Right. And you have to, it's it's essentially, uh, Jaws, the video game sort of, Mm. um, and you know, you have to swim around and eat people. Um, and, and, uh, I believe it was Bernie Stoller who contacted Universal Studios and said, look, we're releasing this game. It's a shark. It's a bit like Jaws. You've got Jaws coming out. Should we license it? What do we need to do? And they said, um, you only have to pay royalties after the first 100,000 of them are produced. And he went, okay. And so he made sure that only 90,000 of them were ever produced. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Which I that, think is that, absolutely that, genius.
2: Yes. You know, Bernie Stoller is, um, he's really interesting. There are a couple of people who were really genius pioneers in video games and they they bounced around a lot they showed up in a lot of different places and had made a lot of impact wherever they went and Bernie stoller is mm-hmm. definitely absolutely one of them he, he was a great leader he he helped form the the industry itself um mm-hmm. he mentored mm-hmm. a lot of people and, and the people who knew him really respected him
1: yeah. absolutely um, I, I uh, I've read in multiple different places lots and lots of different places that are uh, Bernie was the person that pushed for, hey, we need internet access for the Dreamcast. We don't need a DVD drive. Internet access. Because internet-based video games are going to be huge. Um, and I, I've read that he pushed for a lot of the, the early, um, Sony exclusives as well. Hey, we need a, a mascot. Hey, let's find, uh, there's this thing called Crash Bandicoot. Let's push for that. You know, and, and I think especially those, those two are very small examples of, of, um his um uh, impact on the industry but i think those two are very very important examples you know, can yeah can you imagine a playstation without crash bandicoot no i don't want it, to it's <laughs> doesn't See, compute right
2: it, here here's my ugly confession and it's, it it's a terrible confession no way should ever make it i actually preferred crash bandicoot to to mario 64 I I, I found myself lost in it immediately. I loved the sense of humor. I got, I found myself very frustrated with the flight controls in Mario 64. Mm. Um, I mean, deeply frustrated with those. I I loved the worlds that they created. Uh, But Crash Bandicoot had a great sense of humor. It was forced, you know, it was was really, it was 2D but it felt like 3D. (laughs) Mm. sorry about that and (laughs) I uh, you know so Crash Bandicoot I thought the Crash Bandicoot games were wonderful again they were funny Uh, they were challenging you know I mean without the yeah I, I just thought that the Crash Bandicoot games were they were for me they were a nicer in- introduction into the the world of PlayStation versus N sixty four, and a nice introduction for uh, a really a really nice introduction for Sony. I mean, when you stop to think about it, a lot of the world was still side scrolling back then, and mm. attempts at three D until Mario sixty four attempts at three D had mostly been faulty. Um, mm-hmm. terrible camera problems. What mm. Mario sixty four overcame a lot of those camera problems, but part of the way they did that was by putting Mario in all kinds of very empty places.
0: So, yeah. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I you know what? I'll go on a limb with you, Stephen. I am going to agree with you there. Um, Crash Bandicoot. It it had the sense of humor. It, um, it was very fast paced. You just pick up and go for it. It was it was difficult, but that was part of its charm. Um Mario was very sort of you could pick up where you left off. It was very revolutionary, especially with the pad and have you, but between the two, Mario annoyed me more. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> exactly. So I was I was I definitely said I'm 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 we Crash Bandicoot so much better. Uh, because Mario was it's Obviously, it's a, it's a household name. It's a mascot for Nintendo, but mm-hmm. it's... And it's the 3D version, obviously, with, with N64, but it's it's nothing we hadn't seen before. Because right? mm-hmm. it's still Mario, isn't it? Yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm with you there. Crash Bandicoot, I'll go with that. No, <laughs>
2: well, thank you. So here's a question for you guys. What was your favorite mm-hmm. game on the N64?
1: Oh, I think I know what G is going to say. Do you want to go goodness Um... Oh, that's a difficult one. So I do have, I do have two that are, are vying two. for, for, yeah, for mm-hmm. my favorite. Um, one of which was a Konami game and was advertised a lot in different places as, oh, it's the N64 version of Metal Gear Solid, mm-hmm. which was horrendously wrong. Um, and that was a rather stupidly named title, Hybrid Heaven. Um, but I like that because <laughs> it had like a, for those who haven't played it it has like a a 3d um rumble tumble run around jump platformy uh feel to it and then when you have to fight enemies it drops into almost like a uh it's a combination of like a, a traditional RPG where there's, you know, a status bar you have to wait to fill up and um, a fighting game, you know, so you have to wait for your status bar to fill up, hit the action button and choose a punch or a kick or a throw or something like that. So it became almost like a, almost like a mixed martial arts game um, and you could move around in the fight scenes, but if you were moving, it would slow down the, 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 the timer, uh, bar or whatever you want to call it um, and i think that sort of brought something fresh to it the story was absolutely bonkers but the actual playing of the game was you know was fun to do
2: you know i don't i think i i may never have even heard that of that game <laughs> so that, i'm gonna have to look that up thank you
1: there you go <laughs> My goodness, (laughs) you're very welcome. Um, And I think one of the other ones, um, and it's not the N64 version of it that I'm a fan of, but there was a a game released by Acclaim Studios. I think it's Acclaim Teesside. So like the very north, like up here in the frozen norths of the UK. Um, And uh, it was called Shadow Man, and it was based on a series of comic books. I had no idea about the comic books. And it probably says more about me, the person, when I tell you that it is an incredibly dark horror, psychological Yucky, terrible, you know, uh, it, it would have definitely been given an R rating or a, uh, whatever the 17 plus rating is in the States. I, I apologize. I'm, I'm, f- uh, floundering around, uh, you know, an M rating at the very least. Um, and that was a load of fun. That was kind of like if you took a Metroidvania style Legend of Zelda y action y adventure game and just went, okay, let's set it in a world where, there are horrendously horrible psychopaths that you need to track down and kill for no reason whatsoever. And that's kind of fun, but just because of the open-worldness. So it had this non-linear story and you could play it in whatever order you wanted. And I liked that because it gave me the player control over the progress that the character makes and the progress that the story makes. And you could totally just do parts of the game in whatever order you wanted, giving it that non-linear feel. And I really enjoyed that.
0: Um, I'm I'm going to go completely off topic, so it's not going to be sort of like horrendous blood and guts and what have you. So I'm going to say Doom sixty top mm-hmm. sixty four, obviously, because um, you know that's not blood and guts. Uh, <laughs> I preferred Doom sixty four over GoldenEye. Now, there's a hot topic. There's there's a hot wow,
2: topic. that is a <laughs> um, bold <yeah>. comment. <laughs> I know, very
0: bold. I, I could have said all of the classic, you know, Golden Eye. Uh, all the other ones are n64, but I I did like Doom because I got my first taste of Doom on the Jaguar. What well, a hell of a first taste that was! Um, <laughs> but the the n64, it just for me, it the the controls flood. Um, at the time, it was a lot easier for me to pick up Doom than it was Goldeneye or Perfect Dark or you know all the other first person shooters on it. I just loved Doom. It it looked different. It looked almost the enemies were almost claymation. It looked like claymation to me. And it was incredibly dark, so I turned up the TV brightness, you know, because I couldn't see a damn thing. Um, but I did like Doom. Never completed it until there was a remaster a couple of years ago, or a year or so ago. So I never actually completed it, plus I was on. was only young. I was lucky if I didn't chew the wall, you know. Um, <laughs> but the other one that I liked on the N64, because there's two, was a um, bit of a wrestling fan. Um, so, and it was, it's not the one you think it's WCW versus NWO Revenge. Because who doesn't like smacking people over the head? Um, I just I just love that game. It was... I didn't know anyone, apart from, obviously, the big ones, like Hulk Hogan, you know. But just, just playing as a ninja, smacking people around, throwing them all over the place, looking cool while doing it. <laughs> who, who doesn't love it, you know? Yeah. Um, I did like that, and I had, like, the Bumble Pack, which was... Never thought that would work with it, but it did. And it was it was weird. You you throw someone around and your your hands are going what are you? What are you? you know. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, so if it's if it's not smacking people over the head, it's shooting them in the face with chainsaws. Uh, chain guns even. you imagine chainsaws? Good lord.
1: Chainsaw gun. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, just just shooting in a chain. Gun. Anyway. Thinking way too much about that. So yeah, so it wasn't exactly wholesome family fun, but I had a lot of fun Doing things I shouldn't have at that age, you know, with yeah. games like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, so that
1: that that partially leads me on to something that is um, not the actual event, but the, the but there's a little controversy around surrounding the event. So I know that there was the um, the. Uh, uh, so let me back up a little bit. I genuinely believe that the uh, the Joint Committee on Video Game Violence was a good thing for the industry right Mm. Uh, out of it we got the uh the esrb we got lots of uh regulation around what we can and can't you know sell to children which is brilliant i really you know i'm not i'm not for censorship but i am for um making sure that the content that we give to people is relevant to them and it's not going to affect them in any kind of negative way Um, but i do know that there is some controversy around did nintendo start it and Did Nintendo not start it? <laughs> and mm-hmm. there's lots of lots of opinions on this. So I was wondering, Stephen, as a as a as a uh, historian of that period of time, and as a journalist when you were working in that area of time, um, what are your opinions? Do you think Nintendo started it, or do you think uh, that it was just that the trajectory of the the titles that were around at the time were just naturally going to lead in that direction anyway?
2: I think, and this is really truly, I think. I think that um that Joe Lieberman, you know, cuz I got to work with Senator Lieberman fairly fairly closely. He he's, was very kind and very made himself very accessible. Um when he says that his aide took him out and showed him Mortal Kombat and he was offended, I believe that. I don't think he's making that up. Um do I think Nintendo saw opportunity and fanned the flames almost undeniably? uh and, and fan them a little too hard. Let, let's, let's just say it's probably a good thing when you're going to fan the flames not to douse yourself with lighter fluid first. Or at least... Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, and... and, and You know, there, there's, there's some real fun there, too. uh Bill White had recently left Nintendo and gone to Sega. And was happy to stick his thumb in, in Nintendo's eye a little bit at there. And I still remember interviewing Howard Lincoln and Howard Lincoln saying something kind of nasty about Bill White. And then talking to Bill White the following week, and Bill White's like, oh, yeah, Howard and I are great friends. We went out fishing last week. And it's like... <laughs> Okay. <laughs> you know, um, I don't think he'd actually go fishing with you unless, like, he put you on a hook and used you as the worm. But anyways, uh, but, you know, White did a good job. And White knew Nintendo's vulnerabilities. And so when Nintendo went there and thought, we're going to come out as a clean hat and, and, Sega is going to come out looking like the bad guys who are going after people's children. White did a good job of saying, hey, you're not that clean either. Um,
0: <laughs>
2: you know, it's yeah. not that many years hence. In 2000, 2001, we get to the, the GameCube, which I got to tell you, hardware-wise, I think GameCube was the last console made for actual gamers. I love mm. the GameCube. Uh, you know it was it wasn't made to watch movies, it wasn't made to take you on the internet. It doesn't cook your toast your bread or, or wipe your tush. It simply played games <laughs> um, and did a great job at it. And, and that it failed is heartbreaking to me, um, one because that led Nintendo to go in the other direction to stop trying to c- compete on technology. Um, you know, and while I love the DS, uh, I, I created a quite a storm on myself. I, I can't believe I'm going jumping around from topic to topic this freely. I apologize, but that's no, fine. The the last interview I ever did as a game journalist with USA Today, the the Wii had been out for a couple of years and I was at a Nintendo event and I used to write for USA Today. Another reporter came by and said, "Hey, what do you think of Wii?" and i told that reporter i think the wee bubble is about to burst and boy the the hate i got for that and me being me instead of just saying well this is what i think i had to then shove my foot in my mouth and swallow until i was <laughs> gagging on my kneecap um but but you know then i had to turn it into an attack on on independent games indie games, which was a real mistake. But but you know what I was basing my view that the that the Wii bubble was about to burst was that when a when a person when when an Xbox owner took out his Xbox, they were usually played for three hours. When a PS3 person pulled out their PS3 they played for three hours. When a PS2 person played, pulled out their PS2, they played for three hours. When a you know when an N64 person pulled out an N64, wanna take a while, guess how long they played for? Um <laughs> But but when a Wii owner pulled out their Wii, they played That's Wii the game console. No, it's not. Anyways, mm-hmm. don't Clear your mind <laughs> of any dirty thoughts. Wii is the name of it. Uh, anyways. So when, when they pulled out their Wii game console and played a Wii game, they played for 45 minutes, generally. That was the average. Mm. And, yep. you know, but the other thing was, and this was personal observation, you'd talk to Wii owners and you'd say, how do you feel about your Wii? And they'd, oh, I love it. It's just so great. And you'd say, well, what game are you playing? And they'd say tennis or bowling or boxing, um, mm. and what it boiled down to was that they might have bought some other games, but they weren't playing them. So mm. Mm. you know, looking back, people got really mad at me and thought I would, didn't know what I was talking about when I thought when I said the Wii bubble was going to bur- burst, and I was wrong. The Wii bubble lasted another two years, but when it burst, it really burst. People realized wow, I'm bored as hell of this.
0: Yeah,
2: um, And not only did it burst, but that burst lasted into another console. You know, the Wii. Yeah. So, you know, um, you know, because to me, Wii was like a return to um, Pong. You'd buy a Pong machine and it would have the games hardwired into it. You could change games in the in the magnavox odyssey uh but those games were actually getting hardwired in the 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 cards that you stuck into the magnavox were actually just flipping the dip switch so it would go from different games that were higher hardwired in from one to another but but the we you know it wasn't that Wii sports was hardwired in but that was all they were people were most people were playing on it. There were some other games, mm-hmm. and there were some good ones. There was a very nice version of what do you know? Here's a Nintendo con uh, console. I'll bet you there's a Mario Kart on it. Oh look, there you yeah, know there's a Mario and a good one, which you can't say about about Mario on on GameCube, by the way. Um, mm-hmm. and, <laughs> and well, I'll bet you if there's a Mar- uh, Nintendo console, what do you think? Think there's a chance there might be a Zelda on it? Oh, there is. That's great, you know. Um, so I don't know, but but going back to what took me to all this, by the by the way, was that as N sixty four as Nintendo saw the market slipping away, going almost all Sony, uh, they and for the they tried to come out with um, with with horror games for GameCube. Well, not going also, because in America, they were also going to Xbox. In England as well, they were going to Xbox. Uh, Europe is interesting. Europe is divided when it comes to Microsoft consoles. Uh, England, and I think it's Germany, are largely Xbox, and then the rest of Europe prefers Sony. It's very interesting. Anyways, but my my point being that um, they came out with Eternal Darkness. You were talking about dark games. Uh, a game I actually still got like. got my copy. You still have your copy. There you go. I, th- I yeah, think it's a great it's, game.
0: It's surprisingly, it's in near mint condition. I don't know how the hell I've managed <laughs> to do that, but it's on, it's on my shelf. I can't believe I, I found it the other day. I took some of the desktop. that's going on the shelf. In the front room, people are seeing that.
2: You this know it's quite hard to get hold
0: of. It was a yeah. really cool game. Um, did it belong
2: on a Nintendo console? You know, you know that that whole uh, Capcom debacle. You know, the Capcom Five was it. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, did should Resident Evils have been coming out on on GameCube first? They looked great on GameCube. Uh, something that nobody ever gives credit GameCube credit for. It was actually a considerably more powerful console than than the PS2 technologically. Hmm. Um, yeah, the, the GameCube is that's the the console that I look back and just think it it should have been a contender.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: For, for me, it's um, it's a case of someone said this to me before. It was if it was a meme or someone said this to me before, but it was I don't care if you didn't sell well. I love you, GameCube. Yeah, mm-hmm. I love you. Yeah. I don't care if you didn't sell well. It is just oh, um, and I can also say uh, Eternal Darkness. I fell for it. I deleted my memory card when it came yeah. up. It said it's been corrupted. Delete it. I fell for it and I deleted my memory card. I had Metal Gear Solid Twin Snakes and over three hundred hours into Fantasy Star Online. I deleted oh, no. it. I wiped it. I fell for it. And I I don't mind saying that. I absolutely fell for it and it annoyed the <laughs> hell out of me. I'd hand you a, a Kleenex from my Kleenex. Oh, wait. No, that's a GameCube. Sorry.
1: <laughs> oh, <laughs> my goodness.
0: But, yeah, GameCube. I, I love my GameCube. I've still got my GameCube somewhere. I'm, I'm tempted to hook it up now. You know, the TV. Like,
2: like I say, yeah. the last true gamer system. And, and mm. I can't believe people put that controller down, you know, say that it wasn't a great controller. That was... That may be my favorite controller of all time. Although, you and was a great controller, a really good controller, and it had to be the controller for Virtual Boy. Mm. It had yeah. to be a great controller because old fogies like me always look down at their controllers, and you couldn't do that with Virtual Boy.
1: Yeah. So, that's true. you know... but I. I wonder whether that's because you were, and I'm going to steal a joke from Squidge here, maybe because you were spending too much time fiddling with the dial on the top, which was uh, to control how far you would projectile vomit.
0: There you go. Whilst playing the
1: game. Not my joke,
0: <laughs> by the way. I can't remember where I got it from, but well, it's not I'm my joke. I you. It <laughs> not mine. Hey, sorry to interrupt your favorite podcast, but I'm here to tell you about Shrimp and Crits, an actual play podcast with a southern twist. My name is Ian, and I am the keeper for this show as we play Monster of the Week by Michael Sands. If you like the sound of swampy monster mayhem, gators gone shopping, and magical fairy mischief, you'll be right at home in the remote panhandle town of Gullicochica, Florida, where spooky danger has begun to wash ashore. Shrimp and Crits is the story of Sarah Payne the Mundane. All
2: I'm asking for... Is answers. That's all I'm looking for is the truth.
0: Ari Green the Searcher. You know the proclamations of the fame. I suggest you follow them from now on. And Ray Ray, the most mundane monstrous you will ever meet. Mr. Zeus, I'm a I'm a big fan. I, I knew you were I knew you were real, um. And Ray Ray just like bowing in front of this swan. As they fumble their way through protecting their skeptical town from mysterious evils, we release new episodes every other Monday on the Podcatcher of Your Choice. Hope to see you soon. Soon in Sunny Golakochika.
2: I, I remember being a Toys R Us when we came, or when when um, Virtual Boy came out, and a kid, you know, ran over. And somebody was playing with the with, with the the um, Saturn demo machine. Someone else was playing with the PlayStation demo machine. But there was the the Virtual Boy. I'll be hold, yeah, you know, I'll be darned. You could get right on it. So he gets right on it plays i think he expected his mom to come out any minute so he didn't adjust things and he just kept playing and kept playing and mom finally shows up and he looks up and he came this close to fainting
1: mm-hmm. it's it's a real shame because um mm-hmm. i feel that um gunpei yokoi has and had, I mean, unfortunately he's no longer with us and, you know, it happened a while ago, so it's not like a spoiler, but um, he has such an amazing legacy of um, leading an amazing engineering team at Nintendo. And, you know, for his final project at Nintendo to be the virtual boy and then for him to leave and create the wonder swan, it's, it's almost like he never really got a swan song. Um And and that's a real shame because I'm I'm a huge fan of his 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 idea of use whatever we have now and do this sort of responsible engineering in in bodyguards this responsible idea of engineering let's not blow out through our budget let's build something that we have build something out of the parts that we have laying around to see what we can make Uh, you said you said earlier on Stephen about the NES had the same CPU as the Atari twenty six hundred. They just worked with it more economically to make it uh, work better. You know, they invented the idea of the graphics card. They had the, the PPU, the pixel processing unit, which is the, the earliest, almost like the earliest uh, version of a GPU, a graphics processing unit. Right. And, just the, the the mind that he had to be able to just let's throw all these components onto a onto a circuit board and it will just it won't just work but you know what I mean it will work and it will be uh, cheap enough that we can use maybe not the bleeding edge of technology but we can push it to the point where it's still usable give it to our, uh, our software engineers and our designers like uh, Miyamoto and just watch something amazing come out of it right well
2: now so I'm gonna jump in here because Gunpei Yokoi was one of my first. Friends in the
1: industry. Uh, wow. Uh,
2: it was heartbreaking when he passed away. So, so I was at a CES, I was fairly new in the industry, and, and Virtual Boy was had not come out yet. And I was covering it for electronic games. And I went to Nintendo and said I want to meet all these people. I in truth, I cribbed their names out of "Game Over" by David Chef. I didn't know all these people; nobody did. Really, mm-hmm. you know, if it weren't for Chef, we might still not, might still not know them. And so I I asked for Genyo Takeda, probably even asked for uh, Yamouchi Of course, that that wasn't about to happen. I, they gave me some Miyamoto time, but Gunpei Yokoi gave me an an hour, two days in a row. Mm-hmm. And after that, whenever we were at a show, if we'd see each other, we'd go have a drink together. And we couldn't talk very much um, because my Japanese is non-existent and I'm not sure where his English was, but not it wasn't strong. But there was a bond. There was a, a real friendship. Mm-hmm. And I remember the last time I got to see him was at the unveiling of the n sixty four and it was at at you know space space world or the Nintendo show they may have changed the name at that point. I think it was still space world and mm-hmm. and everyone ran to this one corner and wa- looked at the n sixty four and then near the exit as you left, there was a little ring of virtual boys and and gunpei was there with his translator. And as I was leaving, you know, and I want to write my article about the N64. There was Gunpan. and he was like, "Can you please come take a look at things?" And you know, he was my friend, so we went and I looked at his stuff, and it wasn't wonderful. And then his nobody else was there, so we sat and talked, and his translator translated for me. And that was the last time I got to see him. And he was a wonderful gentleman. He was nice. He was smart. He had a was self deprecating sense of humor. Um I think he already knew he was leaving Nintendo at that point. And you know, and the thing is have you ever played with a WonderSwan Swan, or especially the original WonderSwan?
1: Uh I um, have I'm at, at the, a yeah, convention, play. yeah.
0: It I was. Have, um, I haven't had the pleasure. Yeah.
2: It was really impressive. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, it was when it came out. It was competing with the original Game Boy, and it had mm-hmm. a bigger screen, better graphics, ran on a single battery. Um, the games were were nice. Uh, you know, it came out late, but part of Gumpay's thinking one was let's use this old technology because it's cheaper, but also because everyone knows how to program for it. Hmm you know um a, and so they can do better things on it they we don't have to create a whole bunch
0: of tools Um so i hit the ground running
2: yeah wondrous one wondrous one i still have my wondrous one i don't have a whole lot of other things but when part of the reason i still have it is because you know i do associate it with yokoi who is somebody who was so kind to me yeah um you know, I mean, I got to interview, uh, Takeda twice and I, I understand he's a pretty nice guy. He wasn't a, a warm, fuzzy guy in the, in the interviews. Uh, mm. I, I got to interview Miyamoto three, four times a year. Uh, and, and, you know, he's fun. He's a nice guy. When I first interviewed him, he, his, the, his question to me was, why does anybody want to interview me? um and 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 by the time i did my last interview with him he knew he was a star he wasn't arrogant i don't think that man has an arrogant bone in his body um Mm -hmm. i've seen that there are lists where people talk about two or three times where miyamoto was a jerk and they list his the an interview i did with him and and tim stamper where he kind of laid down the law on um on Donkey Kong Country, uh, and it's so interesting to me. You know, there I think there are people who are alleging that that interview never took place. And hmm. what's funny about that was that that was very early in, on in my career. You know, I would go on for another ten years interviewing Miyamoto four times a year. I would talk with. Perrin Kaplan, the head of communications at Nintendo Weekly, at least. Um that was a headline article in Electronic Games magazine. That was the cover article. No mm-hmm. one ever said, Wow, you know, he didn't say that, or you misunderstood him, or anything. Miyamoto said never said, No, I actually like Don- Donkey Kong Country. None of that ever happened. None, none of them ever questioned me. They could have questioned me. Uh, back at the time, it was my practice. It's no, was, it's no longer my practice, but at the time it was my practice to send articles to, to companies, including to Perrin Kaplan to make sure that I had all the, all of my facts right. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they were fine with it then that, that a lot of people have made it a controversial comment since then is, um, it's fascinating to me. You know, Tim Stamper is who I've seen uh, several times through the years since then. Has never brought it up. It's just—it's fascinating to me. I think writing this book, I talked to Joel Hochberg, who's still in partnership with Chris Stamper. You know, it's just yeah, fascinating. <laughs> and if you're looking for a, a section of this conversation to cut out, that would probably be the section because I sound awfully I defensive.
1: Know, I, no, I, I, I think that's that's him. It's an important uh, statement to make because I think that um, people who perhaps are not the biggest fans of the output of certain groups of people will look for any reason whatsoever to – because it's like confirmation bias, right? They're looking for, I think this person is terrible, and I will look for the tiniest shred of evidence that proves it, right? So Mm.
2: people want to be the high priest of video game history. I don't consider myself the high priest of video game history. I'm a guy who got to live most of it, and I've been blessed to meet so many of the people. But, mm-hmm. I think there are better historians around. Um, I think I do a good job of communicating the history. Um, but, so, right before my book came out, I did an article on the history of video games for MSNBC. It was 16 pages long. and. Wow. Somebody came through. I didn't do the artwork at all on it. I had nothing to do with the artwork. An editor there found the picture of a kid playing, I think, an Intellivision and put the Atari, put a caption underneath that said the Atari 2600 was the biggest console of its time. And you had people saying, well, I wouldn't read his book if he doesn't know the difference between a 2600 and an Intellivision. <laughs> and it's like, it's like you know, you know, this is somebody who wants to be the high priest of video game history, and mm-hmm. he's running around looking for anything. And so, on my new book, there's a, a somebody who came out and said, "Oh, this is egregious. We found an egregious <laughs> error in this book." He says that only one of the most the highest grossing uh, games of all time came out after 92. That's egregious. My life is broken. My the world is falling apart. Whatever you do, don't read this book. It's horrible. And and that that um that statistic could only have come We've lost Squidge. Anyways, that statistic could only have come from from Google or from, um, from uh, Wikipedia at oh, all. Yeah. Only somebody who doesn't know what he's talking about could ever go to Wikipedia. Well, first of all, Wikipedia doesn't generate its own tables. People go on and, and they, they take information to Wikipedia and aggregate this information. And secondly, oh, my gosh, if your life really was ruined because you disagree with this statistic, there's probably a table somewhere with a lot of good psychiatrists' phone numbers on it. (laughs) Um, And and you might use that table and – you know, give it a good study because mm-hmm. there's 592 pages in the book. You can find chances are you can find another 599, 91 errors if you look carefully enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, with you know, that's that's the good thing about this book versus the first quarter. You know, the self-published one because you can find all 591 errors on one page with my terrible grammar and, and diction. <laughs> <laughs> it was an egregious book anyways so there you go.
1: <laughs> i think i think that loops back to something that you said towards the beginning you know you said as soon as you call your product the ultimate anything right not only might you also be at you know your your you might be because it takes time to prepare something right yeah. so let's say it takes three or four years to write a book by the time you've written it the information that you are using is either already public domain, or uh, perhaps it's it's been superseded by some other information. So, as soon as you say "ultimate," people are immediately going to be on on the lookout for. Well, you know, the this was this has been uh, proven to be wrong, and it's like, well. It doesn't really matter, does it? It's this this person's um, uh, collation of that information and mm-hmm. collecting it into a format that is easily accessible and allowing them to write a narrative around it that provides you with that info. I, I just don't, I don't have time for people who are like that, right? Because I think if your life is that empty, or <laughs> indeed if your life is that good, can I live it? You know, if you. If you <laughs> if your life is that good that you're able to spend all of that time looking for the tiniest error in something can I live that life please <laughs> mm.
2: well this, this is really off color and I you know what in fact I'm going to walk away from that but what I am going to say instead <laughs> is um, that by the time I, this my new book came out Ultimate History was 20 years old and mm. to me it was the ultimately outdated history of video games uh you know, and, and there were some things that later came came out to be incorrect. The The only, you know, I think I do a good job of writing and telling the story. And mm-hmm. then the only other advantage I offer people is that I interviewed a lot of folks. And yeah. sometimes, you know, when people tell stories that they're involved in, they tend to be the center of the stories. So... Mm-hmm there you know it's really interesting walter isaacson and i have interviewed a lot of the same people um i think he's you now have you read his steve jobs book
1: i have yes it's a phenomenal jss
2: Squidge. Mm-hmm. you need to repent and start reading so anyway okay yeah um, fair enough I've been told. <laughs> just promise me this you'll finish that book before you play your next game of eternal darkness
0: Oh, I don't. I'll dun, dun, okay. dun, 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 dun. <laughs> for you. I'll do it for you.
2: Thank you. It, I'll, it I'll really it is you. worth reading. Walter Isaacson's amazing. Some of the stories in his books disagree with some of the stories in my books, even told by the exact same person. You know, so he interviewed Al Alcorn. I interviewed Al Alcorn. He interviewed Steve Wozniak. I interviewed Steve Wozniak. They told him a story one way. They told me a story another way. Doesn't mean that. They lied to one of us, and in the slightest. You, you brought up earlier um, the evolution of the story of the creation of Pac-Man. Actually, you didn't bring it up. You started to bring it up, um, and you brought it up in your questions. But you know, Toru Iwatani. By the time I interviewed him, it was very much. I, I was eating a, a pizza. Somebody else had taken the first slice. I looked down, and there was Pac-Man. But there's an old, uh, an old Pacific. Um, business news article in which he says i wish i could say okay uh it could be that the story has evolved in his mind because he's told it so often or it could also be that the guy who interpreted him at the pacific business news misinterpreted him
1: absolutely you know i mean it's entirely possible
2: so many variables it's you know Mm -hmm. we're into the spider-verse right so, Absolutely,
1: yeah. we are humans. We are infallible, and like you say, you know when you when you tell a story, not only are you the center of the story, but you're the hero in your own yeah. story, right? Yeah. You're never going to. Very few people are going to turn around and say, "Well, actually, um, I'm actually the villain," um, and. You know, but no, because they, they are the stories happen to them, yeah. and they come out on top, and that that's mm-hmm. how we tell stories, how we all tell stories. You know, if if I was to say to you, Stephen, hey, uh, tell me about your morning so far, you might say, well, you know, I was interviewed by these two chaps uh, over in the UK. But, you know, it was great because, you know, I got to tell all of these wonderful stories and I got to show the world, you know, all of the experience that I have. You wouldn't, you wouldn't necessarily say, well, you know, you know, Jay got really philosophical at one point and talked about how we're all the heroes of it. You're not going to focus on that because you're focusing on yourself, right? I, I mean, I'm generalizing. I'm not saying that you wouldn't say, oh, Jay is talking about this, but, but what I mean is because we are the heroes of our own story, we only really focus on the parts that, directly affect us and when we tell that story it's all oh, well, you know i was there when nolan bushnell was having all of these wild parties in his in his uh jacuzzi and look and then you look around the room and realize that me too is a thing and you go um yeah, yeah i i didn't get in the 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 uh, the jacuzzi. Uh, in fact, I told him it was a terrible idea because the person you're telling the story to. Mm. I'm not saying you did. I'm not saying anyone you interviewed mm. did. But the person you're telling the story to has that context and says, "Well, if if they don't, if this person, this fictional person, doesn't say that they that they that they told Nolan that it was a bad idea, then perhaps they are implicit in that story. So that person then mm. alters the narrative ever so slightly to help them come out on top." Because we are the heroes in our own story, right? Yeah.
2: You, well, yeah, and and here you bring up an, an interesting thing. Just that reflects on all of video games. The difference between video games and other other media is, with we, other media, you are the witness, but with video games, mm-hmm.
0: yeah, you are the hero of your of the
2: of the story.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. You you drive the story forward. Yeah,
2: gentlemen. Absolutely. We've been at it for two hours.
1: Yeah, we absolutely have. Uh, <laughs> and, and, <laughs> I'm incredibly gracious of you spending this time with us, oh, Stephen. I,
2: that, I feel I it really goes, appreciate that cuts it. both ways. The truth of the matter is, if I didn't I have, have some so barbecue smoking downstairs and have to sprit, I have to spritz it with vinegar and, and apple cider. If I weren't doing that, I'd probably stay on and bore you some more. But I'm an hour late on my it's last. It's not spritz. boring
1: at all, Stephen. Well, it's oh, been well, a pleasure. please, please don't, don't. <laughs> the, the spritz is more important trust me <laughs> it is trust me a good barbecue is just oh it's it's the best <laughs> so i will i'll let you get back to that Stephen. thank you ever so much and seriously though uh thank you for taking some time to talk to oh, us my um, pleasure we, we have a, a whole sorry
2: if you guys ever want to have me back contact jordan and we'll set it up again i'd be Absolutely. happy to so. Absolutely.
1: um Absolutely. Oh, thank you ever so much, Stephen. We we do actually have a whole list of questions that came from friends of ours, and, 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 uh, and there's a huge list of them. So I feel like if, if it's okay with you, perhaps we could do something like this again and just yeah, talk well, let's through let's, some of those. Let's uh,
2: let's something I up for not next week, because next week is crazy, but the week after next is wide open. Let's find a, sure. a day and get it taken care of.
1: Sounds good to me. Sounds good to me. Excellent. Well, thank you ever so much, Stephen. I'll try not to keep you too long. Uh, I just want to say thank you for taking the time with us. I really appreciate it because Mm. I really enjoyed volume one and I'm the next book on my pile is volume two. I will get Squidge to uh, either read the Walter Isaacson, Steve Jobs biography or listen to it because he's more of an audiobook consumer and we'll we'll get back to you another time. I promise you. Yeah. I'll
2: do it. Like I say, my door is always open. So thank you.
1: Thank you very much. And awesome.
2: And Squidge. I'm anxious to see what you think of Walter Isaacson.
0: <laughs> there you go. I'll get you
1: straight see? on it. Okay. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you ever so much. See you guys. Intro music is Among the Stars by Muse Station Productions. Outro music is I Need You Watashi no Sabate by GH. Spoiler break music is Spectrum Subdiffusion Mix by Phonics. Palette cleanser music is Breathe Deep, Breathe Clear by Siobhan Degay. See the show notes for more details.